0: photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time
2: they're now converted into basically mathematical shapes and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape
0: good evening listeners
2: good evening listeners good evening listeners it is the 14th of april 2019 and you're tuned in to 88.7 kbvr corvallis It is currently just after 7 p.m. and on a Sunday that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrienne Gallo.
0: And I'm Lori Lutz. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages.
2: Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, Our guest started in Switzerland for her undergraduate degree in environmental studies. Her cultural immersion continued in Australia and Kenya, where she focused on understanding how people prepare for climate change and where she was first exposed to human-animal interactions. She is a master's student in fisheries and wildlife biology and is uh, studying with... Dr. Kelly Bingwig, well, Jackie Deli, thank you so much for coming on air, and I apologize for that hiccup in the beginning.
1: No, that was a fantastic introduction, actually. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me.
2: So before we begin, I want to stay a little bit big picture, and as people go and explore the land, uh, especially forests and whatnot, I wanted to ask, how have human and animal interactions evolved over time?
1: Uh, That's a big question, and a broad one, and I'll try to capture it, but I would say, Uh, our populations are increasing. So the way we use the land, um, whether we're developing it, whether we're using it for substance, economic purposes, recreational purposes, hiking, hunting, rafting uh, has changed. And in Oregon, you know, our population is increasing and it's growing. So that interaction with wildlife is increasing um, as that urban wildlife fringe is becoming a little smaller.
2: So what does that mean for land managers?
1: They have a lot of responsibility. The parcels, if you look at Oregon and how we divide our land, um, you have so many agencies and organizations working to manage. You have the BLM land that manages for recreational purposes. Uh, Maybe they also manage for the fauna and flora. Maybe they manage for economic purposes. You have federal agencies managing for wildlife populations. We could see that with our refuge system. Um, and then you have nonprofit organizations operating in the same space, managing the same type of uh, land, whether it's for wildlife or people uses. I think that would cover it.
2: So, for BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, mm-hmm. they have a lot of specific objectives. For the Forest Service, they also have a lot of specific right. objectives and your research does a combination of things, looking at both the spatial locations of the land that they manage, but also the values of the communities that they operate. Tell us a little bit more about this human ecology mapping technique.
1: Right, so I wanna add to that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife is another agency I wanna recognize because they're also someone who I've worked with a little bit, um, by in communication with to understand, you know, Oregon's wildlife populations. Um, They operate in many different states. So we have the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife here um, working in their Salem offices. Um, And to add your
2: question was again. Oh, um, tell us a little more a little bit more about the uh, this method that you're using. Right. called human ecology, human ecology mapping. Is yeah, right?
1: and some people call it community-based mapping. Um, some people call it participatory mapping. And I think it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> you might see this a lot in indigenous community work. Uh, my advisor, Dr. Kelly Beedenwick, again, she's a social scientist in the fisheries and wildlife department here at Oregon State University. And she's done human ecology on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. And I think what I love about it, it is it spatially maps people's knowledge, their values, or how they use the land. So you could get a lot of techniques and it allows people almost the, the power or the opportunity to give their decisions of how they use that land visually and then communicating through that. So I used it in my own research um, as a method to capture how humans use the landscape in Oregon, specifically for recreational purposes. Hiking, hunting, floating, hanging out, picnics, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So can you tell us a little bit more about how you went about conducting this research? So you're making these maps and you're literally like handing maps to people Mm -hmm. that you run into on the trail? (laughs) Like what did this look like?
1: Yeah, so starting off as any researcher, you're just flooded with information and where you wanna take that research and the methods you wanna apply. And I took the opportunity to say, what do I really want to learn? And what's the best way to capture this idea of human-black bear interaction, which is the core of what I'm interested in? Uh, So how I started is, it might be a long-winded answer, but (laughs) I approached the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife and said, hey, do you have information on where there's known human-black bear interaction areas in the state? And since 2008, the organ department has had a mandatory check-in of black bear tooths from hunting kills, uh, bears killed from timber damage, bears killed from human safety. So they have lots of good data. From a scientist's perspective, fantastic. I mean, a
2: decade's worth of, of data. Is that, that's essentially a long-term data set of where humans and black bears have interacted in some way.
1: Right. So they are mortality points and I'm calling them human-black bear interaction because it's exactly that. Bears killed for these various uh, human-induced reasons,
0: you could say. And this is um, this data set is unique to Oregon, right? This mm-hmm. process is something that, um, so when a, a black bear is killed for whatever reason, a tooth, I, you kind of just like <laughs> slip that in there, but I find this very interesting. <laughs> a, um, a tooth has to be presented along with GPS coordinates right, um, exactly. to the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And so that's where this data set comes from right
1: yeah and I I don't think enough is emphasized how yeah exactly cool this is for a scientist because you get so much data off of that tooth um Mm -hmm. about to help manage black bear populations from a management perspective and understand a little bit more about the ecology of black bears themselves and Oregon I could go on about what I know about black bear ecology but (laughs) understanding (laughs) population dynamics of black bears is difficult and I know this is just one method that they're using, uh, and it is unique to Oregon because unlike other states, they don't have this mandatory check-in of killings.
2: So I think when most people think of a science project or a, or a research project, they think of just the physical side of things. So exactly what we we're discussing, where are, where on the landscape, was there a human black bear interaction? Um, is it on a, you know, where on the hill slope, where, mm-hmm. uh, the physical questions of, of where, But oftentimes the why isn't necessarily asked. And I think that's what makes your research so interesting because it gets not only at the geospatial questions, but also the values that are overlaid from that community. Tell us more about your interviews.
1: Right. So I'm going into so now I understand where this human black bear interaction is. And I took that method of participatory mapping um, or human ecology mapping, as you referred to, and you come. Out. I had this survey on an iPad standing at trailheads uh, throughout the state of Oregon over the course of 25 days 8 to 12 hours a day Asking people would you take my survey? 15-minute uh, long survey, so it probably was drooling and agonizing <laughs> for some but they were they physically mapped in this on this iPad where they use the landscape. So they drew a circle or a dot and they said, this is where I use. So now I have where these humans, um, so I got 210 surveys, said they use the landscape. I have this data of where human and black bear interactions are known. And then spatially, what's that look like? And just visually managers appreciate that. And then now there's all these tools I'm learning I'm still a student, so I'm learning <laughs> a lot. But spatially, I could run some statistics and figure out what's going on on the landscape with these humans and black bears. And then all those underlining tones of what this might mean.
0: And that when you, oh, sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> So when you're interviewing these people... Um, you're not only finding out where they're mapping, but also why. So can you tell us some of the questions um, that you were asking to kind of get at why the people were using the land, and also um, how you started to integrate that with their perceptions of black bears?
1: Right, because I wanted to get at this idea of human-black bear conflict. Um, Black bears are looked at more as a nuisance, or maybe as someone who causes damage to your apple orchard, getting into your garbage cans. So realizing that before it becomes a conflict, there's all these interactions that take place, whether they're positive or negative, and a lot of interactions with wildlife species in general could be perceived as positive or negative. And it's very much an individual perception. And I'm incorporating psychology. I would say, pulling in um, the field of social science into my research. And so understanding what people's knowledge is of black bears, their experiences with black bears, what do they perceive the threat of black bears and then their attitudes. Do they love black bears on their property? Do they like black bears from a distance? (laughs) Do they want to see black bears as often as they can? Uh, Leading into do, what kind of control methods would they want of black bears? Lethal controls, killing of controls. I asked a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't help yourself when you're interested in all this um, individual attributes, as we could call them, of people. And then getting up to overall what's their acceptance of black bears. Some people say tolerance. Calling it attitude. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I just want to touch on this, that you had a response rate of around 60%, which in your field is really, really good.
1: Yeah, I would actually call that 72% roughly, but <laughs> oh, <yes>. I'm very <laughs> proud of it. My notes are wrong, Ben, 72 No, I might have just Be um, proud, yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: No, in my field, I mean, a response rate of 15%, 20%. I mean, mail surveys is the predominant method uh, when people think social science research uh, and i would say that's decreasing we don't get that much in the mail these days and the way our generations are going phone surveys tend to not always do so well as uh, so mine was an intercept survey again i was out on those trailheads from the months of august to october down in the rogue area the evans area um, the souslaw area those familiar with Suslaw forest and then the McKenzie Forest area. So when you're physically on a trailhead and you're asking people, would you like to take, it? it's a more face-to-face interaction. So even if they declined, I'm still sitting there after they come back from their hike, then they feel <laughs> bad that I'm still sitting there. <laughs> and then I'm a student, and then they see my Oregon State shirt, yeah. Then they're like, okay, I'll take your survey now. <laughs> take
2: pity on us and students. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what. <laughs> Okay, so this is, so the work you're describing in Southern Oregon and Central Oregon Cascades, this was kind of initiated by a management plan on human perceptions on black bears from 2012 released from the Oregon Department of Fisheries and Wildlife. They left it open in their management plan that they wanted to know more about it. And your research is specifically trying to fill that niche, right? Right.
1: Uh, Yeah, their black bear management plan was last updated in 2012 before that i have it here 1998 so they don't update it oh wow frequently Um, i would say though the population of black bears is reported to be stable and the ecology of what we know of black bears is pretty well refined Um, of course we have scientists out there still studying ecology of black bears uh, I have yet to find a research that looks at human dimensions of black bears in the state of Oregon. So that's where I'm hoping the niche of my research could come in for the state of Oregon. And then I would say they, and exactly in their management plan, they have a way of addressing human black bear. They call conflict or nuisance, damage, uh, really for those economic reasons um, and hunting as well. And one of their five strategies is creating some geographic information system maps, just that physical location like we talked about, that spatially where these interactions are occurring and more framing it in those negative interactions. And then also the ability to provide recommendations of either putting up fences, uh, bear-proof containers to deter negative interactions or bears getting into those garbage cans. Uh, They also have a strategy of providing like public opinion or engagement really to those park areas. So going back to that land use, um, providing those bear proof containers, they really want to stop the bears from becoming habituated, as we call it. So getting used to human food and staying in an area because that's what turns them to a conflict bear. I stated a lot there to unpack, but it's a very <laughs> fascinating subject for myself.
2: <laughs> so one thing you mentioned is that uh, you're you're hoping your niche is to be in this human-black bear interactions in Oregon specifically. Mm-hmm. So there's a plus and a minus. The plus is, as a scientist, there is a lot of area to explore in okay. this field, in this location. Uh, the downside is you're kind of making your way along this research path on your own, because there isn't much in the way of guidance. There is one idea in terms of uh, this idea of tolerance, mm-hmm. where if the more you're exposed to a species, the more um, acceptable or tolerant you are of that species. So uh, what are your thoughts on tolerance on human black bear interactions and in what species is that maybe more accepted?
1: Yeah, uh, taking a step back, I think the field of human dimensions, specifically human dimensions of wildlife, is growing it's becoming recognized uh, there are other states who heavily look at human black bear populations more specifically human grizzly conflicts um, you can see in Montana the state of Alaska and uh, we're starting we could pull from literature looking at human wolf conflict Washington State so there's resources I could draw from and understand uh, we will be having Wolves coming down cougars in the state of Oregon, there's other species to look at too, other than black bears, expanding my own research. Uh, and then I would add
2: what, what more about tolerance that the more we should know about an animal should have some level of predictability in that Oh, the more we know mm-hmm. about whales, we probably appreciate whales more, and we want to save them more. Does that work mm-hmm. for black bears?
1: And that's actually exactly what I'm exploring, this idea of tolerance. I've gotten some reluctance to use that word because, again, I'm dealing with so many different fields from psychology to ecologist. And so I myself am trying to figure out if I use the word tolerance, what is my clear definition of tolerance as it relates to black bears or my study? So the word acceptance is one and then perceptions is one that you widely hear of. And so I'm still playing with this idea of tolerance and trying to understand it because you're so right. There's a wide spectrum and historically tolerance has been almost like a acceptance of the capacity for a wildlife species, uh, really based on a population number.
0: So I know you're just diving into Mm -hmm. your results and you haven't um, had a chance to really come up Mm -hmm. with any conclusive Results, yeah. But do you have any feelings toward um, whether people that um, have had more interactions with black bears, like do they have more of a positive perception or do you have any feelings about what people have told you?
1: I would say one of my favorite things of doing the work I'm doing, and it's probably because I like to talk. A little bit too much (laughs) is, and you're on the show. Yeah, doing intercept surveys, you do get a lot of things that might not be. When you do a survey and you mail it out, they fill in bubbles. When you're on the trailhead, I get a lot of personal interaction and stories I wouldn't otherwise hear of. And everyone wants to share their story or encounter with a black bear, (laughs) their experiences, (laughs) both positive and negative. And I heard a lot of good stories. And I would draw, and I recently, I am exploring my data a little bit more because all I've done is that spatial. I have some pretty maps to share. <laughs> <Everybody> <laughs> but maps everyone maps. loves yes. to get those P values. their are statistical <laughs> significance. So I, though, um, have looked at experiences, people's experiences. Those that have expressed Uh, Negative experiences with a bear, whether it's seeing a bear, that direct interaction, the bears on their property, that has driven more of their overall negative experience with black bears and their overall negative attitude towards black bears. Those who have positive, it's not as driven to their experiences, they express it as positive. And those are neutral who express, "Eh, I like bears, I understand they're there, but maybe keep them at a distance. Mm-hmm. So I have started to see some results that show negative experiences really drive a more so negative attitude.
2: How I that
0: it. makes sense, mm-hmm. I think.
2: Yeah, definitely. I guess, you know, whales are a hard animal to have a negative experience with, but bears, well, they're a much easier animal to have a negative experience with.
1: And then that degree of net, right, if it's um, a one-time interaction or if it's a loss of your pet, I mean, that would really influence if it's getting into your Mm. garbage or if they repeatedly impact your apple orchard at some point, you might be like, enough's enough of this bear coming around. (laughs) Or it is a threat. Maybe it's a threat to your uh, family that you perceive or just being outside in your own yard.
0: So I feel like we can't um, have this interview without uh, describing what you're supposed to do if you do interact with the black bear because I personally have never had a black bear interaction. Adrian um, has had numerous as as I have, I have learned today. Um, but okay, so say you're mean and you've never interacted with a black bear before, what am I supposed to do?
1: I get that question a lot and I love <laughs> sure. it because I myself learned. Um, you have your black bears, you have your grizzly bears, and they could be differentiated mostly by size. I mean, grizzlies are two times as larger than black bears, and they have a hump going about them. Grizzlies are also not found in the lower states, except for Montana and a small population of Washington State. Then you find black bears in 40 states, the United States. So black bears are all over. But black bears, you act big, you yell, you scream, you scare them away. You slowly back away if it's a mama and their cubs. Grizzly bears, you play dead. (laughs) Just duck, (laughs) play dead, back away, stay away, cover your neck. Get away from those grizzlies. And then black bears are the opposite. Now black bears can try climb trees, grizzlies could climb trees. They both are excellent swimmers, so you gotta just slowly back away. Bear spray, I mean, that's something I just bought myself, too. <laughs> <laughs> bought my friends, as well. Uh, and when you're out in backcountry, depends on the field site. I have not seen in Oregon too many bear-proof containers. You see them in California a lot to put your stuff away. Montana, if you do backcountry, You harness all your food at least 12 feet above the ground. There's all these little methods to do, but it's something to just be aware of. We're in this beautiful forest area of Oregon.
2: (laughs) So you're actually a native of the Pacific Northwest, and I'd like to ask if during your time in, in Washington State at least, if you have ever interacted with a bear prior to starting this graduate degree.
1: So I've never directly interacted with a bear in Washington State. i have always on the lookout for their poop, (laughs) their (laughs) scat. I point that out. (laughs) Uh, I did work for an organization called Western Wildlife Outreach, um, and I helped a graduate student with camera traps settings on trailheads, and that started... My idea of thinking about the urban wildlife fringe and thinking about black bears in King County in Washington State and what that looks like, working with data from the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife to understand the calls they get of people reporting black bears coming into trash cans in these neighborhoods in Washington. And that's where my I came down to Oregon to start, and I had this idea of, involving my research to understand human-black bear interactions.
2: For those that want to see a photo of this camera trap that uh, Jackie is describing, we have a photo on our blog. If you go to our blog, it's inspiration, dissemination, search Oregon State. And then if you type in uh, Jackie Deli, it'll be the only you are the only Jackie Deli. So. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> That's what I
1: noticed, too. Oregon State, there's no other Jackie Deli out there.
2: <laughs> um, yeah, there's a really cool photo of of you in the foreground and what looks like a very nice old growth forest, and then next to it is, at a different time of day, using this uh, 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 camera trap, a, a bear walking exactly where you are.
1: And I have to say, that is in an urban neighborhood. So Washington... Um, I guess depending where you live in Oregon, but Washington I do feel has a lot of forest cover, but that was an urban area and we did these camera traps uh, studying that urban wildlife fringe again.
2: Mm -hmm. So I would like to transition because we are almost running out of time, but I think your history of getting to where you are now at Oregon State is Mm -hmm. so interesting knowing that you did your undergraduate degree abroad. Tell us more about your experience.
1: Yeah, thanks. I try to be a little humble about that, but it's also so cool (laughs) because that's what I wanted to do. I I left high school wanting to travel. Uh, I didn't have a degree in mind when I started, and I saw Switzerland from a family friend who is from there. So it's this place called Lugano. Got a Swiss and an American degree, but there was only like four hundred students in that university, and they emphasize cross-cultural learning and multiple perspectives and i would say that's where i drew in my love for cultures and people and different beliefs and understanding because i did a environmental studies as you mentioned earlier and i just kept building off of that with all the various travels we did academically <laughs> with professors
0: <laughs> <laughs> where they like true. air quotes around that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> academically <Okay. laughs>
2: So uh, were one of your academic outings a uh, secondary program in Italy?
1: That was. Another second Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to stay there as long as possible. I think similar to international students who come to Oregon State, the universities only give you a visa for however long your degree is. So I went abroad to Italy to study slow food movement, the Italian language, but Please don't ask me to say anything in Italian. And then (laughs) (laughs) um, I came back and I came back to Washington State to start working and figure out my next plan.
2: Well, actually, before you came back, I do want to touch on a time that you went to Australia because that was when you had mentioned you saw a little bit more of the ecological side of things and where you saw people planning for climate change. And this was that first overlap you noticed of... The ecology and how humans respond to that
1: right so my education was humans and cultural views and sustainable development and then I wanted to do an abroad program to understand rainforest ecology and the joke of my family was you want to go abroad from your abroad experience and I was like <laughs> most certainly and then they're like you want to get further away from us I'm like Yes. <laughs> Let's go Australia, <laughs> where it's like a 20-hour plane ride. So I was uh, stationed in this small rainforest system, but in a town called Youngborough. So it's in northern Queensland, probably two hours from Cairns, where you might know of Cairns as scuba diving. And I studied rainforest ecology, um, really started looking at restoration of rainforest and that human overlap so understanding where some of those indigenous people come from in that northern queensland area uh what some of the forest i want to say forest managers there are doing for restoration for climate change and then that's when i was like this is something i want to explore a little bit more it was very cool to understand
2: so then once you had that spark, that's when you eventually made it back to home in the Pacific Northwest, and you didn't immediately run out to graduate school. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit of that uh, transition period.
1: Yeah, I maybe a lot of people relate, but... Getting into graduate school, you have to know what you want to do. It takes years of communication, either with yourself, with others, (laughs) with professors. (laughs) It took a lot of time, and I had to figure out what a U.S. system looks like and what is the difference between a research institute versus if you were to just get a one-year applied science degree, and what are those differences? So I had a lot of phone calls with mentors. I would say this to other students, like, talk to graduate students, I even took a year online OSU Wildlife Management Certificate to get myself familiar, a little more familiar, and get some more of those classes with ecology. Um, plant ecology I did, wildlife management I did, um, a couple stats classes, which is always fun. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then I uh, made some communication. Probably had 10 different emails, three different phone calls, and Dr. Kelly Biedenwig was one who followed through with me. She was really encouraging. We had some good phone calls, but her and I still had, it was a year of contact and her figuring out, is this the right student for me to take on for two and a half, three years of her own personal life too. It's a lot of commitment from a professor's standpoint to take on students.
0: Right. Absolutely. I think it's interesting that you had like a one year courtship essentially <laughs> yeah, yeah. before like bringing <laughs> before being brought on as a student. Um, yeah. And and that you spent all of that time really figuring out what you wanted to do. And also, since your undergrad wasn't particularly science heavy, you kind of had to tap into that as well.
1: Right. I had to show and then I had I also was privileged enough. I think, to come in and be able to design my own research project. So Kelly allowed me to say, this is the area I want to study. This is the people I want to study. These are the methods, pulling in the participatory mapping as one method.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think by having that experience of um – Having that year-long time to really figure those things out probably has really benefited you moving forward because you kind of had a lot of things, um, a lot of those details worked out and already had that rapport and that relationship with your um, advisor.
1: And it goes back to maybe all graduate students or students recognize applying for funding, just showing her (laughs) that I can do it (laughs) and Mm -hmm. what that looks like. And when you start articulating it in writing form, you refine a little bit more why you want to go to graduate school, because it is a commitment.
2: So then, once graduate school ends, what are your long-term plans to go? Fantastic s- question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I, I really like thinking in the international spectrum. I've worked with a lot of organizations in my time from when I finished my undergrad to where I'm now. I participated in a lot of organizations from in Kenya with Save the Elephant, um, working with people who do stuff in Panama, uh, people who do stuff in pa- Papua New Guinea as well. And I would like to go back to that I think human wildlife interactions could be found everywhere, globally. Uh, and those conflicts are a little more prevalent in areas where they don't have the same institutions that maybe in the US we have. We have so many agencies and nonprofits working to address some of these um, potential issues and in other countries, they don't. And you have people who are really reliant. um, The most prominent example is farmers for their crops, human-elephant conflict and they're dependent on those crops and these protected areas and people living right along there uh, and they have to, find other solutions to either deter or manage those wildlife populations a different way. So I hope I could go and contribute on a broader scale eventually.
2: Well that's awesome. I have no doubt that we'll we'll hear about you. Yeah. Uh, from some Papua New Guinea research papers and journals. Oh, that would be great. Or something, I'm sure. And let
0: me know if you need an assistant. I might be able to, like, swing a week or two or something. Can I
2: I throw my hat in the line, too? I'm second. Yeah. I second as a research
0: assistant. (laughs) All right. Well, Jackie, we have two traditions on our show. And the first one is for you to give a little bit of advice for... um, Someone, So um, please tell us who your audience is and what advice you have. I think there's a lot of advice. I think for
1: myself, I'm going to actually start with myself. Uh, Perfect. Remind myself, and this actually could be applied to others, uh, to have grit and passion. Realize what you are good at as a scientist um, and what you are good at may come through as what you're passionate about but I am think DNA and the way we're going with DNA methods and science is fantastic but my own personality would not succeed in that field at all (laughs) 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 so I'm realizing you have to be humble as a scientist you have to have the dream but also be grounded in reality um, and realize that we're becoming more international and collaborative as we speak so this is to future students who are designing projects Um, i think some of the coolest projects are multiple disciplines answering the same question from different angles so you get your social science you get your ecologist maybe you get your paleontologist or geologist coming together to really figure out an ecosystem and there's so many ways to approach research questions and so much we don't know. So let that curiosity drive you, but also let that collaboration let you go further. I think It's really cool.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. And I think you're like the perfect embodiment of that like holistic approach and um, also like having maintaining this global perspective. So.
2: Our last tradition is we asked you for a song. So mm-hmm. what song did you choose and why?
1: So there was that, this was a hard area <laughs> for me to choose from because I do draw in my love for the classic 80s like J-Lo <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I was like talking about bears so I wanted to pull in some of the work I've heard from First Nations and the songs they sing um, very difficult to find their music out there but I did pull from a Dave Matthews song um, I think his vocals are outstanding. His drum beats. I he's native to Seattle, and I've been going to his concerts for years. He does three-day festivals probably every summer. So you could play it away. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you coming on the air.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having thank me. You. I appreciate. It. Happy hey. Sunday, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and here it is, uh, Dave Matthews Band with their song "That Girl Is You." Enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, please tell your friends about it and give a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so other podcast peeps can find our show.
0: The theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hannam. Special thanks to the supporting staff for KBVR that allowed this show and podcast to be possible.
2: The show was started by Jian Kamvar and Joey Holber in 2012. Its hosts include Matt McConnell, Steve Friedman, Mackenzie Smith, Kristen Finch, Adrian Gallo, Lillian Padgett Cobb, Lori Lutz, Heather Forsythe, Maggie Exton, Scott Classic, Marcus Weinman, Daniel Watkins, and Harrison Steirwalt.
0: To learn about other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, please visit our well-curated website at blogs.oregonstate.edu/inspiration.
2: And finally. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at KBVRID and Facebook at Inspiration Dissemination.
0: Thank you for listening and stay curious, my friends.